The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. As television crews descended on 3551 Bowden Circle East in Jacksonville, Florida, a forensic team was already underway, unloading shovels, dirt sifters, and a ground-penetrating radar system. It was February 2016, and wasn't the first time commotion from the property had drawn neighbors out into the street. Out of sight, behind a jerry-rigged privacy fence, investigators were about to unearth the skeletal remains of a young woman who hadn't been seen in a year. But to police, there were only two mysteries surrounding the discovery, the victim's name and the exact cause of death. Everything else about the murder, detectives believed they already knew, because the murderer had confessed and drawn them a map to the precise location of the remains. Join me now as we take a look into a bizarre case that finally came to a conclusion after years of delays in the judicial system. You'll learn how a disturbed man terrorized a neighborhood and how the persistence of local residents finally helped to take him down, bringing an end to a home they referred to as Jacksonville's very own House of Horrors. Jacksonville, Florida is the most populous city in the state, with nearly one million residents enjoying perpetual sunshine beside the Atlantic Ocean. The first coast, as the area is known, is the very definition of urban sprawl. In the years following World War II, thousands of families flocked to the area where rows upon rows of low-density suburban homes began to spring up. They covered an area of over 850 square miles, making Jacksonville the largest U.S. city by area in the lower 48. The Southside Jacksonville suburb of Tiger Hole Secret Woods is surrounded by lush wetlands and lakes. Sprawling bungalows sit on large plots of land shaded by moss-laden sweet acacia trees. Just walking down the street, it's easy to look at the vegetation and imagine the dense subtropical forests that once existed. Unlike the affluent cookie-cutter suburbs Florida is famous for, the homes here are decidedly working class and demonstrate a diversity of character, expressing a sense of individualism and highlighting the brand of hardiness the South is known for. However, there was one property located at 3551 Bowden Circle East that stood out among all the rest. A makeshift fence of mismatched plastic tarps completely blocked any view of the residents. Surrounding the dilapidated property's backyard on the remaining three sides were massive privacy fences cobbled together from wood, scrap metal, and spare vinyl siding. Guarding the tops of the fences were hundreds of razor blades, also placed in tree limbs and hedges. Strategically hidden around the property were thin sheets of wood with four-inch nails sticking out of the boards. But for neighbors, 
The creepy and unsightly property itself was the least of their concerns. It was the person who lived inside who had them unnerved, a man who they described as the neighbor from hell. Russell David Tillis was a Southside local. In fact, he'd grown up in that very home on Bowden Circle, dating back to his childhood in the 60s and 70s. Russell, or Rusty as he was known to friends, came from a turbulent home, where loud arguments could often be heard throughout the neighborhood, erupting between Russell and his father Claude II, or his older brother Claude III. When Russell's mother Margie discovered her husband had been molesting Russell, she moved him and his brother into a trailer on the property and instructed them to lock the door at night and not let their father in if he came knocking. Russell claimed that later, his brother started sexually abusing him as well. As a child, Russell began exhibiting delinquent behavior, committing petty crimes that landed him in a special school for unruly kids and later juvenile detention. But as a young man, Russell seemed to be getting his life together as he began traveling throughout the U.S. working as a crane operator, just like his dad before him. But eventually, Russell moved back to Florida where he started his own business, First Coast Home Upgrading Incorporated. At the Duval County Courthouse, the letterhead for Russell's old business can be found stuffed somewhere in a mounting case file. His company logo, a hammer and saw above a house. The house itself appears all too like Russell's childhood home. The hammer and saw, on the other hand, were perhaps an ominous foreshadowing of what was to come. At 20 years old, Russell's long wavy straw-colored hair resembled that of his rock idols, brothers Johnny and Ronnie Van Zandt of the band Leonard Skinner. It was while he was living in California he met his first wife, Shannon. Shannon and Russell started dating after meeting at a welfare office in 1981. She was 16 at the time, and after becoming pregnant about a year later, the couple decided to move in together and get married. Well, when I met him, he was clean and sober at the beginning, and he was a completely different person. And when things started to go south, I got out of there pretty fast. So. What happened is I started putting a pressure on him to make more money and uh, at one point he um, decided to start selling drugs. And I didn't take drugs. He started selling, I, I'm pretty sure it was methamphetamine. And my dad was over one day and saw it and uh, told me he saw Russell preparing it and putting, you know, saw it in person and he told me about it because Russell didn't tell me, I didn't know. Um, but then it became very obvious after a while that he was using it himself. And um, that's why, you know, to make a long story short, that was the beginning of the end. After that relationship fell apart, Russell married for a second time in 1988. A woman who's now attempting to remain anonymous because of everything she endured. During their marriage, she reported experiencing spousal rape, as well as physical and psychological abuse at the hands of Russell Tillis. She also claimed Russell even pointed a gun to her head and threatened her. In the beginning, she thought she married someone she considered to be a decent man, an opinion she didn't hold for long. After he became hooked on crack cocaine, and a dark side began to emerge. In August of 1989, 
Russell was arrested in Hillsborough County, Florida, charged and convicted with kidnapping. A woman testified her car had broken down along the interstate, and Russell had offered to give her a ride to the nearest phone. It was pitch black, nobody was around, and I didn't know what to do. Uh, he fell eerily silent, and um, I knew something. I kept trying to listen to conversation, and he just wouldn't say anything to me. And then I knew something was wrong, right, just in my gut. He took an exit off the interstate and drove back into a construction site, and there was nothing there. It was just like a mounds of dirt and nothing else there. Well, he just kind of attacked me and choked me, um, grabbed my, my breast, and whenever I give in, he would stop, and then, and then I would try again, and he just kept choking me until I'd kind of get lightheaded, and then I would get afraid and just stop fighting. I tried to kick the windows out. It was a little, um, it was a little pickup truck, so it's hard to get any leverage in there to do anything or fight anybody. I knew he was going to rape me, and I, I didn't want that. And I, but then I didn't want to be strangled, so I, I didn't know what to do. It went on for a while, um, and just ready, I was just ready to stop and let it go. And he looked over, and there was two headlights coming at us. And there was nothing else there but these headlights coming in. And he just jumped up, and I grabbed the door handle and pulled the, the um, lock up and rolled out. Despite the charges, Russell was never sent to jail. However, it wouldn't be long before Russell was behind bars. After a string of burglaries and break-ins in 1993, Russell was then sent to prison for his first long stretch of four years, during which time his second wife filed for divorce in 1997. Then in 1998, just five months after being released from prison, Russell was arrested again for burglary and sentenced to another year in jail. The state of Florida now considered Russell a habitual felony offender, an appropriate classification considering Russell was once again arrested for burglary in Grand Theft Auto, receiving another four-year sentence beginning in early 2000. By now, Russell had racked up some serious prison time, but he hadn't wasted it entirely. He'd become what is commonly referred to as a jailhouse lawyer, spending much of his free time reading and studying law while helping fellow inmates with their cases. In September of 2004, Russell was a free man again and stayed out of trouble for longer than usual, making it about a year and a half until his next incident. In March 2006, Russell stopped his pickup truck on a street across from the St. John's River offering a ride to an underage minor. Mr. Tillis basically opens up the passenger door and kind of signals to come in. And without thinking, you know, I just want to go home. Hey, maybe this is a ticket out. I don't have to worry about trying to get home to my mom. Maybe he'll help me. Um, so I end up getting in the car. Moment of silence. Not even a moment later, he pulls right into... Um, a parking lot that's like a vacant lot it's not even a parking lot not even a couple feet ahead um basically before he even turned he i was explaining in a way like thank you for picking me up i just want me to get home um, my best friend left me and i just want to get home and there was just nothing but silence and all of a sudden when he turned into that vacant lot he turned off put the car in park turned off the car and 
right then I knew it was trouble. Something bad was going to happen to me. And sure enough, right as I go to look over at him, all I feel is a big slap in my face. He backhanded me really hard on my face. Then adrenaline kicked in and I'm freaking out, not knowing what I'm going to do. Thinking, how am I going to get out of this? Um, <coughs> praying in a sense. And all <coughs> he does is he basically unzip his pants and he basically told me to take off all my clothes or he'll kill me and told me to put um, my mouth on his private part. And as I was doing what I was told, fearing for my life, I remember getting up for air and a thought came into me. That's when I knew I had to pretend that I did this for a living so fearful for my life he would try to kill me now that I saw his face God knows what's going through his mind I told him you didn't have to do this you didn't have to slap me I could have I do this for a living basically a sign of relief hit his face and basically he told me that you could do this all day and I still won't get off so I need to basically have sex with you and my legs were all the way to my head as he penetrated me. And that whole time I prayed to God that I would survive this and that I would have died. And that he'd let me go. And that he would believe me. I saw a wallet, I grabbed it, thinking that's his identification. When I get out of here, I'm gonna report him. And then all of a sudden he was freaking out, where's my wallet, where's my wallet? So I had to pretend like I had to put it back so he wouldn't notice that I took it and searched me or whatnot. And he took his wallet and he pulled out a business card and he said, here, we should do this again sometime. Maybe for like an hour, I'll pay you good, good amount of money, maybe a hundred dollars. And then that's when I said, okay. And then as he turned on the car to leave to take me home, supposedly, he, he said, you know what, forget it. Give me my card back. So he took his card back and that's when I didn't want to bring him all the way to my house. So I told him to drop me off towards Seaboard and Vista Verde's and I told him to turn right there on Vista Verde and he kept going and I said you missed the turn and he said I don't want to do it again and then that's when he went to the next location so he went all the way down I think that was passing Timaquana to apartments I don't know I'm not familiar with he parked right there in the apartments and made me perform oral sex and then penetrate me again that's when he finally took me back he paid me $40 and he, I made him drop me at the beginning of Vista Verdes because I didn't want to him to, God forbid, come back again. Following the attack, the victim was able to provide a description of Russell to law enforcement, with a sketch artist capturing the combed-down hair and box beard he sported at the time. But it would take authorities another 20 months before they were able to match DNA samples and bring Russell in for questioning in November of 2007. During his interrogation, Russell remained calm and in control, respectably dressed, wearing a tailored gray suit, a pristine white shirt, and a pair of glasses. Russell admitted he enjoyed picking up sex workers, something he did quite often. When the detective informed him the girl he picked up was a minor, Russell claimed he never knowingly had sex with a minor and also stated he didn't know her name because as far as he was concerned, the names didn't really matter much. He went on to say, you pick up a girl, you have sex with her, you drop her off, 
the name is irrelevant, really. In 2008, Russell was convicted of child abuse and received another four-year sentence. By the time Russell was released in February of 2012, he'd spent a total of 13 years of the last 18 years behind bars. Soon after being released, Russell moved into his childhood home after inheriting it from his mother who was dying of cancer. That's when the trouble at 3551 Bowden Circle East really began. Following his mother's death, Russell Tillis set about turning the already ramshackle property into a ghastly site. Some described it as a fortress, others like an armed camp. Almost from day one, Russell and his neighbors had an openly antagonistic relationship. Residents claimed Russell threatened to kill them, would prowl the streets shining a flashlight into their bedrooms as they slept. They'd become terrified of their eccentric neighbor, and multiple people were granted restraining orders against him while they begged the police to arrest him. But Russell filed his own petitions, claiming similar threats had been made against him as well. By around 2014, neighbors began reporting incidents involving women on the property, including hearing screaming coming from inside Russell's home. Regularly, they witnessed sex workers entering his residence, and even claimed to have seen one woman chained naked to his fence. Another night, they spotted a woman running nude down the street from Russell's property, yelling, he's gonna kill me. Years later, that same woman would recount to police the full story of what had happened that night. Even then, she was still too frightened to give her full name and went by the initials DG. She was a sex worker and knew how to survive on the streets, but the moment she set foot on Russell's property, she claimed she could feel something bad was about to happen. According to her testimony, after Russell ordered her to undress, he assaulted her but she used her wits and asked him to use the bathroom. Once she locked herself inside, she managed to crawl out of a window before running down the street naked, calling out to neighbors for help. According to Russell, many of the women who came to his property were sex workers and smurfs, a slang term for someone who buys over-the-counter drugs like pseudofedrin and dealers use to make crystal meth, something Russell did frequently but police never took action against Russell, despite being called out to his home more than 80 times in the three years following his release from jail. Finally, in May of 2015, to the relief of the residents on Bowden Circle, Russell was accused of violating a restraining order and was scheduled for arrest. Jacksonville police knew arresting Russell wouldn't be easy. Officers made two nighttime visits to the residents to scope it out before figuring out a way to draw Russell out. Even then, it still didn't go well. At around midnight, on May 28, 2015, police officers threw rocks at an RV parked on Russell's property, hoping he'd come out to inspect the noise. When Russell appeared, officers chased him throughout the property before ultimately apprehending him. But police claimed Russell had ran towards them waving two knives in the air, and he was charged with aggravated assault on a law enforcement officer, battery on a law officer, and resisting arrest with violence. One arresting officer gave his account during a pretrial hearing. Uh, Mr. Tillis continued to flee through his yard toward the, uh, to the left of his truck, which was parked up there in front of his residence. 
and three of us continued to pursue him through his yard. Sergeant Weeks um, was initially the closest, and I was behind Mr. Tillis, once he got to the left of the truck up near the front, turned back towards Sergeant Weeks, square up towards Sergeant Weeks with a knife in each hand, presented himself in a manner which could be a threat to anyone. Even though it was a brief time, it was still a threat. If convicted on the charges, Russell would likely be sentenced to 30 years in prison, a sentence that meant the 53-year-old would likely spend the rest of his life behind bars. Russell was held at the Johnny Good pretrial detention facility, an imposing 12-story prison dominating the east side across the St. John's River. Residents of Bowden Circle took a huge sigh of relief that their four years of terror had finally come to an end and hoped it would be the last time they would hear the name Russell Tillis. They were wrong. In 2012, a 28-year-old woman named Joni Lynn Gunter was released from jail after serving 10 months for a parole violation and possession of marijuana. It was her fourth conviction since age 19. The others had been related to sex work. Joni was born in Gainesville, Florida in 1984 and grew up with her two younger siblings, Ashley and Robert. They lived with their mom and grandmother before their mother was tragically killed by a drunk driver in 1995. Because their grandmother didn't have a job or a car, the state refused her custody of the children, despite her protests. After we tragically lost my daughter Linda, they were placed in foster care, although they really wanted to stay with me. I wasn't permitted to take them in because the state said I didn't have a job or car to provide for them. I had a good neighbor that offered to provide transportation any time we needed it, but that wasn't enough. The siblings who dreamed of starting a band together tried staying in touch and would call into local radio stations to dedicate songs to each other. But life wasn't easy for Joni. By age 19, she was already struggling with a drug addiction, and in November of 2008, she gave birth to a son she named Dominic, who was raised by her grandmother. By 2014, Joni was homeless and living on the streets near the Phillips Expressway not far from Bowden Circle East. She found herself caught up in sex work in order to finance her drug addiction. It wasn't uncommon for Joni's family not to hear from her in a while. Still, her sister Ashley once made a Facebook post asking if anyone had seen her. They would never hear from her again. On February 11, 2016, while Russell sat in prison awaiting trial, officers arrived at the Tillis property. Residents of Bowden Circle had only enjoyed a year of reprieve from a home that had become a monument of terror. With the hand-drawn map provided by Russell Tillis, officers recovered the skeletal remains of a woman from four separate holes, each hole precisely marked on the map. An autopsy later revealed the woman had been bludgeoned to death by a circular object possibly a hammer, and that her bones had been severed by the distinctive marks of a reciprocating saw blade. It took forensic analysis almost 10 months to finally identify the remains as Joni Lynn Gunter's. For me, the main findings were multiple blunt force injuries in the form of depressed fractures of the skull. From the fracture sites themselves on the calvarium, I would say that the number of calvarial blows 
at least was five. We can't tell if there might have been other blows that did not result in fractures. Certainly, blows to the head may not necessarily cause a fracture, so there could have been more than five. There were also injuries to the nose area and to the left hand. Just a few days before detectives recovered Joni's remains, an inmate named Sammy Evans approached Russell in jail to strike up a conversation. What's going on, Tillis, he asked. Earlier that week, Sammy informed police about a fellow inmate who knew the location of a dead body, so they wired up Sammy with a hidden mic and asked him to get a confession on tape. Sammy hoped he'd receive leniency on his own sentence if he got the detectives what they wanted. The battery life of a standard prison wire recorder lasts approximately eight hours. Detectives were hopeful it would be enough time for Russell to slip up and incriminate himself on tape, or at least give them a clue to help locate the supposed body. Almost immediately, Russell began confessing to a litany of crimes, multiple murders, sex trafficking, drug dealing, kidnapping, and more. Detective Sullivan, who was in charge of the case, would later call the recording the most shocking prison wire he'd ever heard in his entire career. It's the most shocking one I've ever had in my career. That map, it was as precise and as accurate. If you go to the Jacksonville property appraiser's office site, they always have like a little diagram, square diagram. It was nearly identical to that. And it was just impressive. I mean, he indicated paces from a point in the backyard to one hole, to paces to another, and it was about as spot on as you could get. He mentioned himself when he's talking to Mr. Evans that he dismembered the bodies. Uh, he mentioned that uh, he, he used a reciprocating saw or a sawzall. He even mentioned the length of the blade, all which was corroborated except for the sawzall was the, the blades were found in a tool shed on, on during a subsequent uh, search warrant of the property. He mentioned a uh, hanging the body up using chains in his garage, which we have photographs and, and found that as well. And, and he also mentioned, you know, uh, where he would chain them up in rooms of the house, mentioned that he like a soundproof rooms. And, and so the house was modified or made, you know, where windows were either boarded or covered up. It was dark, plain rooms, um, metal bed frame beds. Once we saw that in the house, it became very clear how accurate the recording was. Russell described numerous occasions where he picked up drug-addicted women and sex workers, locking them up in his house for weeks or more at a time. Uh, inside the house, we found volumes of paperwork where he would find uh, women of the night, per se, that uh, he would see like their, where they had been arrested or he had personal names. He had, it was like sticky notes of names of women, phone numbers, feminine clothing, items that showed that other women had been there. We've seen letters from women from prison. While holding the women captive, friends of his, Jimmy and David, as well as his brother Claude, would pay him hundreds of dollars to sexually assault them. He specifically described Jimmy as a real freak who got off on beating women while he assaulted them. Interesting, since Russell had been charged with doing the exact same thing in the past. Russell stated that whenever he got tired of having a particular woman around, he'd either release her or kill her, depending on whether or not he thought she'd report him to police. He even told Sammy about a secret spot down the street from his home a swampy area where he buried two women after dismembering them. 
Russell described one woman he thought was either 26 or 28, brunette, very good looking. After keeping her locked in his house for a week, his brother Claude came by to assault her, but she'd recognized him from somewhere, which freaked Claude out. According to Russell, that's when Claude told him he needed to kill her. Russell said he eventually agreed and then dismembered her in the garage. Apparently, he was about to cook up a batch of meth and didn't have time to dispose of her remains down the street like he'd done with the others. Instead, he used his own backyard. The details Russell confessed on the wire were horrific and specific, the language disgusting, callous, and completely unremorseful. He meticulously described using a 10-inch all-purpose reciprocating saw to dismember the women and how easy it made it to transport the remains. However, he was strangely unspecific when it came to the exact way he'd murdered Joni. In order to get more details, detectives asked Sammy to wear the wire a second time, five days later on February 10th. This time, Sammy was more deliberate in trying to steer the conversation toward the details detectives wanted, specifically more information on Jimmy and David that could help police identify and locate them. But Russell's descriptions of the two men were extremely vague. As the two inmates played a game of chess, Sammy fished about how exactly Russell had killed the three girls he claimed to have murdered. But all Russell would say was that he didn't shoot or stab them. But it didn't matter. The recorded confession was enough for detectives to obtain a search warrant and head over to Russell's property to recover remains from his backyard. On December 8th, 2016, Assistant Chief Scott Dingy of the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office announced at a press conference that Russell Tillis had been charged with murder and abuse of a corpse and the possibility of more victims. Uh, based on statements that Tillis made, we believe it's highly likely that other females were victimized by Tillis, uh, including potentially other murders. Based on his history, Tillis sought out vulnerable young females, white females in particular, with a history of drug abuse and prostitution. Tillis targets vulnerable, the forgotten members of our society, the people that don't get reported missing typically, the ones that don't have contact with family members uh, very routinely. So it's, it's highly likely, like her case, that these individuals wouldn't get reported. Um, but we have gone through our missing persons report. We can't find anybody at this time that we can link to Tillis or link to that area, um, but we continue to, to evaluate that. Following Russell's confession to Sammy, the original case against him for attacking police officers began to fall apart. It started in April of 2016, when a neighbor's surveillance video surfaced from the night of Russell's arrest. Although the video showed police chasing Russell throughout his property, there was no evidence of a violent struggle or him charging at police with knives. Russell's defense had been repeatedly told the video didn't exist, but Russell was certain that it must. He said his neighbors hated him so much, they probably watched it for entertainment every Saturday night. Almost a year after his arrest, a neighbor testified she'd provided police with a video on the same day Russell was arrested. Officers, on the other hand, gave widely conflicting reports of what exactly shook down during Russell's arrest. It was also discovered that another officer withheld evidence that was specifically requested by the defense 16 months prior. 
The judge was furious and said it would be an understatement to say the court wasn't pleased and declared a mistrial. Subsequently, Russell made a deal with the prosecutor, pleading guilty to the charges in exchange for a sentence of time already served, a far cry from the 30-year sentence they had originally planned to push for. If it weren't for the recorded confession to Sammy, Russell would be a free man. Instead, he remained in jail, awaiting trial for Joni's murder. If convicted, he could face the death penalty. In April of 2021, Russell's trial finally began. He was charged with kidnapping, human trafficking, murder, as well as abuse of a corpse. The prosecution came armed with physical evidence from Joni's remains, numerous testimonies of women who'd previously been held captive by Russell, and most importantly, the jailhouse confession from 2016. Despite what seemed like a slam-dunk case for the prosecution, Russell pleaded not guilty claiming the confession had been entirely fabricated. It seemed completely unbelievable and even absurd. At first, that is. Russell claimed he knew he was being recorded by Sammy. In fact, he said it was his idea that Sammy record the confession. But why would anyone confess to a murder they didn't commit? According to Russell, he was severely depressed and suicidal at the time. He was 59 years old after all, and staring down the barrel of a 30-year prison sentence. He said he'd rather be given a lethal injection, than slowly die of old age behind bars. That's when he decided to make up an elaborate confession in order to receive the death penalty. He said he thought by including heinous details and aggravating circumstances, a jury would have no other choice but to sentence him to death. He called his plan, Suicide by State. But why wouldn't he just go to the police himself? Why did he need Sammy's help recording a bogus confession? Russell provides his explanation. The problem with the cooked up confession was it had some serious holes in it. And those serious holes are the very reason I couldn't go to the police. If I had just picked up the phone with the tips hotline and said, hey, you know, I committed a murder and I want to confess. They would take me over to the police memorial building. They would subject me to hours of interrogation in front of homicide detectives that take special courses in interrogation. And in the course of being interrogated, eventually that homicide detective would detect there's something wrong with my story. And that was the fear. That's why I couldn't go to the police. I, I didn't mind confessing to a recorder because the recorder wouldn't ask me any questions. And I have enough knowledge of the police in Duval County to know that once they find a body, the rush to justice, they don't care about any other facts, like finding Dave, finding Jimmy, the other multiple murders. They don't care anything about that. They got the body, they got the confession, and they rushed to justice. I relied upon that. So Sammy and I, we cook up this perennial story, but then I start getting a little cold feet because you got to understand, I've got a pretty bad mental despair at the time. I'm depressed, bad. But I start getting cold feet because I think I'm going to get caught. Russell claimed he needed to use the prison wire because he truly didn't know some of the important details, like who the victim was or how she died. It's a claim that seemed 
too convenient and far-fetched to believe. Except for one major detail, Sammy Evans admitted in court that Russell had known he was being recorded when he made his confession. For the record, my name is Sammy Ortega Evans. I came back to the dorm and um, I wrote on a piece of paper that I had the wire. And so he um, instructed me to follow him. And we went to an empty cell that wasn't occupied and I sat down and he began to uh, write questions for me to ask him. And I, I asked him the questions on the recorded device. And later on, uh, the detectives came and pulled me out again and took the device from me. It was possible the state's case against Russell Tillis wasn't going to be as easy as they'd hoped. Prosecuting attorney Alan Mizrahi delivered his opening arguments on April 7th. The dismembered remains of the person that used to be Joni Gunter were found scattered in the booby-trapped backyard of this defendant. Joni Gunter's mortal remains were not found by accident. Shocking discovery was expected because this defendant, in his own words, described in shocking and amazing detail how he chained Joni Gunter to keep her trapped in his horrific home. He admitted in shocking detail how he trafficked in her flesh by selling her to friends so they could have sex with her for money that he profited from and he kept. This man chillingly and amusingly describes how it's pretty easy to dispose of a body after killing it by using a sawzall, a reciprocating saw, to dismember the remains of a human being and bury them in various locations where they would never be found. He annoyingly describes how in Joni Gunter's case, he didn't have enough time to properly dispose of her remains in the swamp where he wanted to dispose of them because he was busy cooking methamphetamine in his kitchen. And so he had to cut up Joni Gunter's body with that reciprocating saw and bury her in his own backyards. The jury listened for days as prosecutors called to the witness stand previous victims of Russell as well as neighbors to testify about their experiences living next door to someone they considered a madman. Threatened to kill me. He would jump the fence, jump over it and pick up. He watched me 24. I couldn't get my car. I had my neighbors check and make sure I was home. Didn't take showers after dark. I had to get bolt locks on all my doors. We could hear what we sounded like a woman screaming for help. It sounded like she was saying, help me. The defense was quick to point out some of the witnesses' stories had changed over time and now contained additional details that weren't present in the original reports made to police years prior. One woman held captive by Russell told the jury she escaped when Russell hadn't chained her up properly. However, in her original statement, she said Russell had gotten tired of hearing her scream and decided to let her go. 
The discrepancies led the defense to question the integrity of the entire case. Although Detective Sullivan testified, a prisoner having knowledge of being recorded by a prison wire would ruin the integrity of an investigation. It was still his belief Russell was telling the truth during his confession. The defense was certainly attempting to sow seeds of doubt among the jury. However, there were a few key facts that weren't being disputed by either side. Russell was aware a woman's body was buried in his backyard, including exactly where her remains were located, and that she'd been dismembered in the precise manner he described on the wire, with a reciprocating saw. When Russell took the stand in his own defense, he too even admitted to these facts. At first, he was a little skeptical. I mean, how many people just walk up to you and say, hey, I know what body's buried, and I'm going to give it to you, and you can trade it for assistance on your case. Okay. So you came up with this map. Yeah, I gave him the map. Yeah, right. I knew exactly where the body was buried, and I knew the condition of the body. Yes, I did. And I knew it was going to be given to the police. Okay. I drew the map, I told him to study it, and then I told him to throw the original in the toilet and make his own hand-copied, hand and then for him to allege that I just told him. But as you indicated earlier in your examination of witnesses, in a casual conversation, do I tell you how many paces it is from my front door to my car? My car is sitting out front, 36 paces from the door. <laughs> While on the stand, Russell gave a very different version of what had happened to Joni from the one he gave on the prison wire. This time he testified that when he saw Joni for the first time, she was already dead. My brother arrives, he calls me on the phone and he says, open the gates, man, I'm on my way over. So I, uh, I go out and open the gates and I hang around for him to drive up in the yard so I can lock him behind him. And uh, he drives up in the yard but he doesn't get out of the car. After I lock the gates, he says, open the garage up. So I open the garage. I open the door and he drives the car in the garage. He gets out. And he's a little, uh, he's a little distraught, hysterical kind of. And uh, he said he needs some help. So, so he gets out of the car and uh, he wants me to help him with a problem. He goes around to the back of the car and he opens the trunk. That's the first time I've seen Joni Gunner. She was in the trunk and there was a mass amount of blood on her chest when she was dead. He wanted me to get in the car with him and help him go down the street and dispose of her. But I wouldn't get in the car. And I told him, I'm not, I'm not getting in the car. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, after a brief confrontation about me getting me not getting in the car, that conversation ended. Trying to get me to assist him in covering up whatever had occurred. Mind you, I don't know, nor have I ever questioned him about how Miss Gunter met her death. That, I never, I never breached that conversation with him. Under a heated cross-examination from the prosecution, Russell refused to answer any questions regarding how Joni came to be buried in his backyard, only admitting he was there when it happened and that he knew the condition of her body. But at that point, Mr. Tillis, you haven't talked about what happened next. Next about what? Well, what did you do with her body to get... Joni Gunter out of that truck. How'd you get her out of the truck? Well, well, at this point in the interrogation, I am going to claim the Fifth Amendment, and I'm not going to make any more statements regarding that question as a means to protect myself from any future associations. This trial will undoubtedly uh, manifest into a second trial. This isn't the first one. There's been too many errors in this trial. I will most, not, most definitely be brought back for a second one. And in the second trial, I don't want this testimony hindering me in the future. So I'm not going to discuss 
what occurred after my brother arrived and we had that discussion at the trunk of that car. I will concede to telling you, Mr. Zarahi, that I knew Miss Gunter was buried in that backyard. I knew the condition of the body and I was present. I'll concede that to you here and now, but you can continue to ask me questions and I will not answer them. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Okay. You're charged, you understand, with grossly abusing a dead human body, right? Count four, yes, sir. And you would agree that you knew the location of every body part, correct? I just told you that I was present. But answer I, my think, question. I think you, I've answered your question before you ask it. You knew, I was, her, you knew where her torso was? I was present. You knew where her head was? I was present when the when Miss Gunter was buried. I just told you that. The questions seem irrelevant. They're not relevant when you're charged with count four, Mr. Tellis. Well, I just told you I was present when her remains were buried, Mr. Marahi. I don't know how more how much more specific I can get. Who buried her? Now that is a different question. And as I just said, this trial was only the prelude to the second one. And I'm not going to be answering those questions that will prejudice me in my next trial. I know that sounds rather bad, but from a legal position, I don't mind sitting here and and giving up what I know, but that particular amount of information I'm going to retain until I come back. And if anybody wants to hear those answers, I would suggest coming to the next trial. And that's when I will be telling you that, if you are the prosecutor in that case. During closing arguments, the prosecution described the bizarro world Russell Tillis lived in and wanted the jury to believe was reality. In the world of this defendant, things do not make sense. It is like a bizarro world where up is down, down is up, right is wrong, and wrong is right. It is a world where you are so depressed that you want to die because you might go to jail on a trumped up charge. It is a bizarro world where you want to die so badly that you try to kill yourself and fail. But your next better idea is to confess to a murder you didn't commit. That's the next best idea in Mr. Tillis's bizarro world. A world where you commit the newly coined phrase, strategic perjury. And then you sit on that witness stand and tell the members of the jury, trust me, a world where you claim to seek the truth by lying, forging, tricking, deceiving, scheming, and conniving. This is Russell Tillis's bizarro world. A world where in one breath, you say to the police, you'll never catch my brother. I'll never tell. And then the next, you come in to a public courtroom and under oath with TV cameras say, my brother's the real killer. That is Russell Tillis' world. A world where no means no, but sometimes yes, and yes means no, unless it doesn't mean, because it all depends on what benefits him. A world where you raise your right hand and ask God for the strength and the help and the assistance to tell the truth about this case, which you saw yesterday that defendant do. And then just a few minutes later, refuse 
to answer questions on the grounds they might incriminate. That is Russell Tillis's world. It does not make sense. His story does not make sense. And that is a rabbit hole into the defendant's house of horrors into his mind. The prosecution also claimed the evidence on the prison wire wasn't necessary to find Russell guilty of any of his crimes, except human trafficking. The physical evidence and witness testimony was enough. The defense argued the state had built its entire prosecution on the compromised prison wire and that they failed to prove the charges against Russell beyond a reasonable doubt. We rely on the integrity of this process. We rely on witnesses to come in and tell the truth. We rely on police officers to come in and tell the truth. We rely on the integrity of the system. This is not a case where an inmate at the jail is saying little bits and pieces about his case. And an inmate hears it and says, you know what? I'm going to use this to my advantage. I'm going to sneak over to the police memorial building and tell the detectives that I've got information about a case. That's not what this case is about. This is a case about a very despondent, depressed, suicided, suicidal individual who was looking at 30 years on the case that he was in there on. And he walks up to Sammy Smith, Sammy Evans, and what does he say? And you heard it from Sammy Evans himself. How do you feel about cooperating in a homicide case? Russell Tillis wasn't caught. A state's witness told you that. That's their witness. This case lacks integrity from the moment it began. And the state attorney's office cannot hide from that. Detective Sullivan talked about the integrity of the case. And this one, based on what the witness that they brought in here said, swore to under oath, this one was compromised from the second it started. On Friday, April 9th, 2021, after five hours of deliberation, the jury came to their verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder as charged in the indictment. We further find the killing was premeditated. We further find that the killing was done during the commission or attempted commission of a felony. Verdict is to count to, we, the jury, find the defendant guilty of kidnapping as charged in the indictment. Interestingly, the jury didn't find Russell guilty of human trafficking, indicating that at least one of the jurors wasn't entirely convinced of the integrity of the prison wire. On Thursday, April 15th, the jury voted 9-3 to give Russell the death penalty, but because the state of Florida requires a unanimous vote to administer a death sentence, Russell was instead given a mandatory sentence of life in prison without parole. The state's lead prosecutor spoke to the media outside the courthouse following Russell's sentencing. Russell Tillis's case is an example of one of the flaws in our criminal justice system that allows for pro se litigants to play games with our system. And so his ability to fire lawyer after lawyer and go pro se and not go pro se 
delayed the process and then obviously COVID did its own. Um, Judge Barillo, I think, did a masterful job of getting this case to trial and ensuring that Russell Tillis received the best representation possible and to ensure that justice was done. Clinical psychologist Dr. Christina Frazzani tries to explain the mind behind the madness in this case, going back as far as Russell Tillis's childhood. Adults who are severely abused by parents or caretakers often feel terrorized as adults. When children are in sexual and emotional positions that not even most adults can comprehend, with no one but their own abusers to turn to for help, healthy brain development is stunted. Not all adults who survive child abuse end up with mental disorders. Some are lucky enough to have very resilient minds, and some get help and find safety and self-worth. Others are not so fortunate, and they become abusive themselves. Common disorders suffered by survivors are somatoform disorders in which a person experiences physical ailments that aren't explained by medical testing, or anxiety disorders, including post-traumatic stress disorder. Some adults, however, might suffer even more persistent brain changes, possibly neurological and even hormonal. Cluster B personality disorders include antisocial, more common in men, and borderline, which is more common for women. Although, of course, the research is still developing in this area, biologically, statistically, and culturally. With antisocial personality disorder, the person believes that the law does not apply to them. They experience no remorse for breaking the law or hurting others. This cluster of personality disorders reflect a lack of self-worth. People in this cluster experience a lot of anger, possibly stemming from years of having no control over the abuse that they suffered. Add illicit drugs to that that take away reason and allow a person to pursue impulsive, shameful acts and fantasies, and you have this type of crime. The horrific and sensational details Russell confessed to on the prison wire have made this case national news. But it's important to remember a woman Detective Sullivan referred to as a forgotten victim, Joni Lynn Gunter, a young woman who will never be reunited with her brother and sister, her grandmother, as well as her son, who's just now becoming a teenager. During the sentencing hearing, Joni's sister Ashley described her big sister and the fond memories she'll always hold close to her. Joni was a great big sister. She was very protective. And no matter what she had or didn't have, she had no problem giving her last dollar or anything else she had to someone in need. Anytime we went out to eat somewhere, if we had leftovers, we would make it a point to give them to someone who was homeless. She taught me so much about care, love, and giving to others. Joni and I loved to sing. She had a beautiful voice. She carried a notebook with her that she wrote poems and songs in. She was so talented. When Joni and I were in separate foster homes, I called Delilah's radio show and dedicated a song to her. Now the song I dedicated to her is Dancing in the Sky by Danny and Lizzie. My favorite line is, I hope you're dancing in the sky. I hope you're singing in the angels' choir. That's my favorite part because she loved to sing and had a beautiful voice. (laughs) 
A special thanks to Dr. Christina Frazzani for sharing her insights in this episode. And now I would like to introduce you to the podcast, Judgy and Juryish. Hey, I'm Jamie. You might know me from Murderish, a true crime podcast. Well, I've got a new podcast called Judgy and Juryish, and I'm hosting it with my best friend since junior high. That's me, Jesse. Every week on Judgy and Juryish, Jamie and I dish on our favorite reality TV shows, with Judgy opinions coming in hotter than a Lady Morgan toaster oven. We'll take you inside the drama, and when reality stars fight, best believe we are engaging. Put on your she by charade joggers, pour a glass of Ramona Pinot Grigio, then search for and subscribe to Judgy and Juryish in your favorite podcast app. And remember... Fix your face and stay looking hot. Because you don't want to end up with a crappy mugshot. Bye. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search the Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by the Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause